Awesome. Thank you, ladies. That's such a treat. Uh, we have one more thing I wanted to mention that's coming up. It's a little farther out, but um, about a month from now, we're going to do uh, our second annual, actually, I think it's our third annual culture conference, we call it. Um, and this year, it's political. And I know what you're thinking. Half of you in the room are really excited and you're like, yes, good. We're finally going to talk about it. And the other half of you are squirming in your chairs. And I just simply want to say, if you're really excited about this conference and this topic, you'll probably dis be disappointed. If you're not excited about it and you're really reticent, then you'll probably be ple pleasantly surprised. So the goal with this is twofold. We want to create some time and space on the weekend. It's a Friday night and a Saturday um, where we can talk specifically about how the Bible and how God's word ought to be imported into our worldview as it relates to society and its leadership instead of the opposite and the other way around, which often happens is that our historical tradition, our culture, our society, maybe our political viewpoint even is read into our biblical worldview and it's influencing the way we think about scripture. And that's backwards. We're going to flip that and talk about how scripture and the Bible ought to be read into our worldview and our, uh, essentially our politics. Um, the second uh, aim at this weekend is that we learn simply how to have good public discourse, good, caring, and kind conversations. So in order to do that, we're bringing in um, a couple from Biola University, a couple of professors from there um, who have a book, a series of books and um, a podcast called Winsome Conviction. And they're literally going to talk to us through the course of the weekend about how to have good, solid biblical conviction, but then how to have engaging and kind conversations with people that may disagree with you. And it's something that I believe is an art we've lost. And so we're going to return to the art of public discourse. We're going to have some conversations, some practice conversations throughout the weekend. And then on Sunday, the 25th, this is Friday, Saturday, the 25th, Sunday, um, Rick Langer, one of the guest speakers we're bringing, he's a, a professor at, um, at Biola and Talbot, has been a pastor for years before that. He's going to be preaching and sharing with us um, his, his angle, his lens on maintaining a biblical conviction in the world that we live in today. So um, I'm really excited about this conference. I think it's going to be very helpful, very meaningful. So please uh, plan on attending. You can sign up on our website um, on the front page. I think there may not be a link yet, but there will be soon. Right now it's just kind of a save the date. Um, so mark your calendar down Friday night and then Saturday, probably through noon. So kind of like an eight to noon thing on Saturday, nine to noon. Um, and uh, we're going to have some of these conversations together. It's going to be great. Um, if you happen to be watching online with us this morning, welcome. Uh, we're grateful that you're able to join us. Um, we are going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter five. And today I have the unfortunate task of talking about money. So we all love talking about money, don't we? You know, I was thinking about this message though, because it's really a very helpful uh, lens, I think, and an insight into how we think about the things that we have. Back in college, I, I bought a, a new used car. It was a 1992. And uh, I drove it away from my parents' house to go back to um, where I was going to 
school at Biola University. And on my way out of town, I got on the highway 50 out of Sacramento and it began to overheat right away. So I turned it right around, drove back to my dad's garage. We checked it out, found out the radiator was bad. So we put a new radiator into it. And like by six hours later, um, I was back in the car, heading towards LA, going back to school. And when I got to school, I got there and the engine was smoking And after a little bit of investigation, um, I determined that there was a small leak of power steering fluid out of one of the power steering lines um, that was spraying into the engine compartment. And I thought, well, I mean, what's it going to hurt? I'll just keep driving it. So uh, I was driving it, and every time I parked, it would smoke a little bit. Do you remember this, Cheryl, the smoking Jeep? Yeah, she goes, I remember. Um, It would smoke, and... uh, And this one day, this was one week to the day that I bought the car. Um, I, I was out all day uh, working and I came back and parked the car and it smoked, you know, and so I went into my room, probably take a nap or something. And my roommates, who were both obnoxious and very casual at the same time, um, walked in and said, one of my roommates, he says, hey, I think your car's on fire. And I said, no, 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 it's like a thing, you know, smoking and whatever. And he goes, no, I'm pretty sure it's on fire. And at that point, I heard the siren <laughs> coming and the, the fire department's making their way down campus. And I go out there and this car, this was a 92 Jeep Cherokee. It was awesome. Had red interior, smelled like smoke. Um, ironically, uh, <laughs> is engulfed in flames, you know. And they start like, they literally, they're pulling hoses and everything to put it up. And this is the funniest thing. And I wasn't, this is how clearly I was thinking is I watched the guy to grab an ax and he's going to ax the hood to get it open. And I ran over there. I'm like, no, 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 don't, don't dent the hood, right? Like this car's in flames. And I'm thinking, I got to fix the hood. No way. And so, you know, a few minutes later, they get the fire out. I'm left with this smoldering pile of metal. Um, and I sit down on the curb in the parking lot in front of Hart Hall down in Biola University. And a mentor of mine, uh, Tim, had come over to sit with me that day. And by then he was sitting by the by next to me on the curb and he says well Jeffrey I said it was gonna burn one way or another right now or later it's like at least now you don't have to fix it and that wasn't all that helpful for me in that moment right I'm like yes I know we don't take anything with us it's all gonna burn and I read this passage and I feel the same pit that I read when I read this passage that I felt that day on the curb, Ecclesiastes chapter 515, it says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. It's that feeling of like, but that's not helpful. Yeah, we know that. Of course, we're not taking anything with us. We get it, okay? It's all over. I know, but that doesn't make me feel better. And so as I read this, I realize there's maybe more than meets the eye here in the passage. And at first glance, I start to feel that angst when I read this, the way that I've felt for much of Ecclesiastes, where it's just this meaningless story toil, chasing after the wind. You know, you read it and it's just like, yeah, life is meaningless. It kind of stinks and then you're going to die. So make the most of it. That's kind of what I read, right? And here, same, it's like, yeah, you've got some stuff, have some things, buy some whatever. They're all going to go away. It's going to burn. So enjoy it if you want to, but whatever. And yet as I read, I see there's so much more meaning and purpose to the things we have, to the materials, to the wealth, to the money than what me say. So, so dig with me this morning in this passage. Let's process through this. I want to read it in context. I'm going to back up to the beginning of chapter five and we're going to walk through this and see what we might learn about the things that we have and possess 
according to the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Chapter 5, verse 10. I'm going to start in verse 10 and read um, just about seven verses here. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all the days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and in anger. Now, before you get too discouraged, like I said, there's, there's more here. He ends with a very stark phrase, three words, vexation, sickness, and anger. Doesn't leave you with a lot of hope, right? Not a lot of clarity. So let's go back and come through and see what we can find. The first thing I, I, I notice in this passage, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And it sounds strangely similar to something that Jesus said. And I start to realize maybe this isn't so much about having wealth or having money or what you have or have not or what you acquire or what you work for or the things you produce or you earn. Maybe this has more to do with your love of those things. And I realize the meaning of wealth is not vanity. It's the love of wealth that is vanity. And I think there's a clear difference. So I spent some time kind of digging through this as I walk through the passage and realize he's got clear warnings for those who love money, that the love of wealth is unsatisfying, it's complicated, and it's exhausting. And yet, for those who properly use and expend those resources and view those things with an appropriate heart posture, the use of wealth is satisfying, counter to unsatisfying. It's simple, rather than complicated. And it actually can be enjoyable rather than exhausting. So I want to see what he's after here as we look through that list. First, it's unsatisfying. Very clear. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. It's about as clear of a statement as he could make on the love of money. Having wealth, therefore, is not the problem. Loving the wealth is the problem. And it really comes down to value. I was reminded of what Paul says in 1 Timothy as he's kind of giving a, a warning, really, essentially, to young Timothy. He's, he's given him a, a pretty clear message of value systems when he says in verse uh, chapter 6, verse 8, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Sounds strangely similar to the verse in Ecclesiastes. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Strong words against loving and pursuing wealth and money. But then listen to what he says in verse 10. 
For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You've heard that. We've said that. That's a pretty famous verse. But it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What Paul is saying to Timothy is what the Kohelet's saying in Ecclesiastes is that if you pursue, if you are caught up in the love of these material things, in the pursuit of more, in the pursuit of wealth, material gain, financial gain, it's, it's actually likely that you'll be dragged away from the faith. Which is kind of a strong warning and a pretty dogmatic view of money. Except for this preacher speaks from experience, right? Remember, he, he go, if you go back, you remember he acquired, he accumulated, he earned He had it all. And the love, the pursuit of those things, as Paul warns, will actually drag you away from faith. And I realize, again, it's really not about the wealth. It's not about the money. It's about the value system. Because faith follows value, does it not? Wearsby said that money is the faith currency of the unbeliever. In other words, if you don't have any kind of faith or belief in a higher entity, in a creator, in a sustainer, in God himself, if there's no faith outside of your material world, the things that you see in front of you tangibly, then money is the currency of your faith, is it not? If I don't believe in anything outside of this world, then the only thing I can trust is dollars and cents. I can't trust people. I can't trust institutions. I can't trust opportunity. Can't trust health. Go on down the list. Is money not the currency of your faith? If there's nothing else. So you begin to put so much trust in the things that you have in front of you. And therefore, when you trust those things, your faith diminishes in a God who's provided. And therefore, even a poor person, and I don't mean that dogmatically or derogatory, a person in poverty without faith will love money, even if they don't have any. For where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. In Matthew 6, a poor person who loves and clings to what he has will not be more satisfied than a rich person who does not love them. See, there's this sort of um, maybe uh, cynicism towards wealth and, and riches from a faith perspective. I think a lot of times we've got a little skewed view where we think it's better to be poor than to be rich, right? So we judge people who have a lot, oftentimes. At least in our culture and our environment, there's this kind of harsh criticism towards those who have a lot. And we start to assume motives and we start to assume, you know, how they got what they have or what family they came from or all these other things. And yet it's all about a value system. See, a poor person could have just as improperly placed values as a rich person. If your value is in the provider, the one who gives, the one who's allowed for you to have what you have, 
then that's a stronger faith than someone who values the very, very little that they have and puts their faith in those things. And we learn and we realize very quickly that money doesn't solve problems. Easy for you to say, says the poor person, you've never been poor, right? We all think that just if you just had a little bit more of a little bit of money, that could solve some problems, right? I could get me out of a jam. If I just had a little bit of money, a little bit more, I could take care of these problems. I could make this go away. But we realize money doesn't solve problems. And if, if a rich person were to take the same perspective, they would say that wealth doesn't solve problems the way that it wouldn't solve problems for being poor. It doesn't solve problems for being wealth. Easy for you to say you've never been rich. There are plenty of problems that come with wealth, are there not? And here the preacher argues, wealth is not only unsatisfying, but it's complicated. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? A love of wealth, a love of money will make your life incredibly complicated. Very, very complex. He's dispelling the myth here that if you just had a little bit more, your life would be simpler. It would be easier. If I just had a little bit, if some money just showed up, if a check just showed up in the mail, some of my problems would go away, right? I mean, who doesn't think that? And the truth is, it might actually make your life easier for a season, maybe for a week or two or three, that you could, yeah, maybe pay off that bill or you could maybe take care of these debts or you could, you know, provide for the thing that you're wanting to provide for. But we know that long-term money does not simplify. We know that long-term free money ruins people's lives. We know, in the, according to the Proverbs, that free money produces sloth. So that means if you're going to have more money, more finance, more wealth, you need to do more business. And if you're going to do more business, then you need more capital. You need more employees. You have more mouths. You have more insurance to pay. You have more customers to satisfy, more debt to service, more systems to manage. You have more orders to fill, more tools to break, right? It is not more simple to have more. And here the preacher says, all that does for you is get your eyes on more. You see more coming in and more coming in and more coming in. And then you simply see more going out and more going out and more going out. So good benefit to you to be able to see the exchange of all the resources, but all it did was complicate your ledger. It's a, it's a very, uh, it's a, a very futile effort to try to continue bringing more in and then simply to see more out. He says, what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? You have more coming. Great. But there's more going and the only advantage is you get eyes on it. In Matthew chapter 6, I, I don't think there's a mistake that Jesus actually puts this teaching on anxiety right tucked in behind his teaching on money. You, you might not have noticed it, but in verse 24, so 624, Jesus says, famous line, you cannot serve God and money, right? We know that verse. It comes at the very end of a long sequence of Jesus teaching on money and wealth. But the very next verse, you might not have noticed in 625, he says, do not be anxious about your life. In your Bible, that might be paragraph separated. There might even be a header in between. But those are two verses back to back. Same continuous thought in Jesus's mind. You cannot love money and love God. Do not be anxious about your life. 
Because Jesus knew that money, that materials, that more produces more anxiety. It complicates your life. There's a connection between the love of money and your anxiety. More money, more problems, right? You ever heard that? A couple of months ago, um, you know, it's kind of winter was setting in and we were having a little bit of rain. I made my way around the yard to do a little bit of cleanup and um, I, I bought a quart of oil to go check and make sure the little engines that we have, you know, on mowers and whatnot were, you know, had enough oil and kind of get them all ready for winter. And I took a little inventory as I was doing that. And guess how many gasoline motors I have at my house? There are 11, not, not including the cars that we own. It is embarrassing. And you guys are chuckling and you're mocking me right now, but I dare you to count, <laughs> go home and count. And you realize like, you know, over time, you just sort of accumulate. We had a log splitter, you know, because we use firewood. And so then well, we got a pressure washer because we got to clean off the patio. And you have that, you know, all add up all these things. And pretty soon, like to maintain 11 gasoline engines on California gas is really hard. It's really complicated. There always is one not starting, right? And it's the whole electric thing sounds pretty good. It's like, you just going to pull the trigger and it just goes. It's really complicated, it's exhausting to manage resource. More resource, more problems. More finance, more money, more capital, more equipment, more problems. And it's exhausting. Here, if we continue reading chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer who eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Isn't that true? Man, anybody lie awake at night, 3 a.m., thinking about assets and liabilities? Anyone awake, like, thinking about how to get the stain out of the brand new couch you just got and can't figure it out? Anyone lie awake, like, trying to figure out how to replace that position of the lady that just quit in your office? Or lying awake, thinking about how to service the debt that you just took on to get the new thing or to start the new venture or whatever it is, we've all been there, right? Lying awake in the middle of the night thinking, what have I done? <laughs> Where are we going to get the money? How's this going to work? How are we going to take care of all these things? The full stomach of the rich. And I would argue that nearly everyone in the room by the world standards is rich. That we've, we've been blessed. We have a lot. The full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And therefore having, accumulating, grabbing, getting more becomes exhausting. And this isn't an indictment. I don't, I don't see him making an accusation here. I think it's just a simple observation. I've noticed, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, that those who have a lot have a harder time sleeping than the laborer who has a little or a lot. They just went out and worked. And they go to bed and they're not thinking about gasoline motors or how to drain the carburetor. They don't care. It doesn't belong to them. Someone else's problem, right? And this again, coming from experience. Chapter two, the preacher says, I amassed, I acquired, I bought, I built. He stacked his deck financially and continued to acquire more and more and more. He's saying, I've done it all. So trust me when I say, if your love, if your trust is in the things of your life, the things you've accumulated or acquired or your pursuit of those things, you will be unsatisfied, you will have a complicated life and you'll be exhausted. 
Again, good news from Ecclesiastes, right? Cheerful Sunday. Welcome to church. But this is where the tide turns. And this is where I'm so excited to lean in and see what he has to say, because I see a clear shift in his language and in his thought process as we get kind of past this verse, that there's good news about wealth. In fact, I think there's usefulness for finances. There's usefulness for money. There's usefulness for even those who have a lot in an appropriate sense, in an appropriate posture, they can be used in incredible ways. There was a story published um, just this month in January of 35 lottery ticket winners. You guys, all you all read the stories, you know, of how lottery ruins everybody's life. You know, every time you win, like they isolate themselves from their family and friends. They become someone they said they'd never become. They, you know, like took on this lifestyle that they couldn't sustain long-term or whatever the reason, right? Like it's statistically proven that the lottery ruins more lives than it helps. But there's this silver lining story in the middle of that article. Out of all 35, there's one story. And the story goes like this. A guy in his 30s who won an exorbitant amount of money in the lottery proceeded to buy the low-income housing block where he grew up and he renovated every single home on the block and then rented them back out as low-income housing. And he lived a quiet and satisfied life. Wealth, money, all the accumulation can be satisfying. It can be fulfilling. It can be simple. With or without wealth, it's what you do with it that counts. More importantly, it's how you view it that counts. How are you looking at the resources that are at your disposal? How you value your wealth matters. So I want to keep reading because here's where it gets good. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18. Follow along with me. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Listen to this, verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift from God. For he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's so much truth right there tucked into verse 19. That God has given wealth. He's provided. He's blessed. He has given you everything you have, whether you are rich or poor. And he who finds satisfaction and enjoyment has received that as a good gift from God. And it says right here, this is a gift and he will not remember the days of his life because God has kept him occupied. In other words, if you are occupied with the giver, if you're focused on the provider, the one who gave and sustained all of those things, that he continues to lavish good gifts on you, if you're focused on him, preoccupied with him so much that you forget the days of your life. You're not even remembering the toil or the hard things or the difficulty. You're neglecting those things, focusing on the provider and the giver. He will, it says, find joy in his heart. Verse 20. Satisfying. Find satisfaction in your labor. Do you earn a small amount of money? Be satisfied in a job well done and in God's provision for you through your labor. Do you earn a large amount of money? Be satisfied in a job well done and God's provision for you through your labor. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Will it always be fair? No, it's not fair, sorry. That's why there's the parable of the vineyard owner. It just doesn't come out fair. 
God's the, the holder of justice. And we don't understand his ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. We don't have to figure that out. What we have to figure out is how to keep our eyes focused on the giver and the provider of every good and perfect gift and be satisfied. But comparison will only steal the satisfaction in what we have. Be careful where you place your value. And again, we find wisdom from Paul in this very conversation. Philippians chapter 4. Forgot to mark it here. Let me just find it for a second. 11, verse 11 says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low or poor, I would say, and I know how to abound or to be rich. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty or wealth and hunger or poverty, abundance or need. You hear that? Paul saying, I've learned the secret. There's a way actually to be content with all those things, whether it's when I've been rich or when I've been poor. And apparently Paul's experienced both. He's had seasons of plenty and seasons of need. He's had seasons of wealth and seasons of poverty. And he said in both, either end of the spectrum, I've learned the secret. There's a secret of being content. Listen to the secret. It's something that you know and heard. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Did you know that was about wealth? And poverty? That Paul's saying the secret to be content is that you can do all things, whether you're in poverty or whether you're in wealth, is to say and remember and declare and posture your heart towards God and say, I can do it. I can be wealthy through Christ who strengthens me. I can do it. I can be poor through Christ who strengthens me. I can have a lot or a little, so long as I keep my eyes focused on the one who provided, the one who continues to provide, the one who continues to give more than I've ever needed or wanted, that he will clothe me, he will feed me, and I can stay therefore content knowing that I can do it through Christ and Christ alone. And then later on, verse 19, if you keep reading in, in Philippians 4, he says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ. See, when you appropriately bestow the honor and appropriately acknowledge where things come from, whether you're poor or rich, it allows for you to maintain satisfaction and contentment regardless of your circumstance. If you're rich, you're able to say, just like Paul says, verse 19, God will supply my every need. If you're poor, you're able to say, just like he says in verse 19, God will supply my every need. But the minute that in either circumstance you say, I can take care of myself, now I become unsatisfied, complicated, and exhausted. I'll go back with me in Ecclesiastes for a second. I want to read this, this verse again, verse 12. For sweet is the sleep of the laborer. We see not only is, is the life with proper value placed in God satisfying, but that life also becomes simple. The beauty of the simple life is that you can go to bed and sleep soundly without the buzz and the fury of keeping up, whether you're in plenty or in want. Simple. God is taking care of everything I need. 
No matter what your bank account looks like, God's taking care of everything I need. I go to sleep and I rest. Doesn't matter how many engines I have to fix. God's taking care of everything I need. No matter how I'm gonna make the utility bill payment this month, God is taking care of everything I need. Whether in seasons of plenty or in seasons of need, God is taking care of everything I need. And this is an upstream battle for us in our culture, is it not? We do not live amongst a people of simplicity. Why should you have one when two will do? Right? Like if you've got one good thing, well, I should get another one because that thing works good. <laughs> you like the way something works, you buy another one. I can get one for the car. I can get one for my wife. I'm going to get one to keep as a backup. We have two of everything. Maybe that's shoes. I don't know what it is. I don't, if I get my shoes wet, I have to have a backup. And, and yet we're constantly keeping up in those environments this ability to believe that I can somehow supply, I can somehow buy or purchase my insulation from the circumstances of the world. If we just have more, then we'll work our way out of this or we'll plan for a rainy day. It's the opposite of biblical simplicity. There's actually biblical advice of how we should spend our money, what you should buy. Proverbs chapter 23. I'm really grateful for just the simplicity of this thought. He says, buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Coming from the guy who had it all, he's saying spend your money, your resources, your time acquiring truth and wisdom. Sacrifice your money to get instruction and understanding because it won't fail you. In fact, it'll continue to posture you in an appropriate view towards God, the provider. And that is the simple life. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we have instructed you. And finally, read again with me, Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot, whether it is plenty or in need, and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift from God. And we see that the life with appropriate view towards funds and money is also therefore enjoyable. Enjoy the reward that God has given you. There's three verbs in this sentence. In verse 19, God has given. 19b, God has gifted. In verse 20, God keeps. That he's given, he's gifted, and he keeps. It is him who provides all of the resources and all the funds and all that you have is from him. So stay focused on him, the giver and the provider and we won't go stray away into the wealth that draws people away from their faith. I'm so grateful for the simplicity of this conclusion. It's kind of this sentiment to look around at what you have, evaluate where it came from and realize that not only did God give it to you, then it says in verse 19, he gave you the power to enjoy it. Enjoy what you have. That's not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm going, look at, look at what I have. Look at all the things that I have in my life. So many blessings. God is not saying, oh, whew, man, you should probably feel really guilty about all that stuff. No, when's the last time you gave a gift to your child and said, hey, 
you should feel kind of bad about that because I spent a lot of money, so don't enjoy it too much. What is that? That's not the posture of a grateful child towards their father who gives and provides. Enjoy it. Use it. Spend it. Bless with it. Encourage with it. But remember where it came from. And maintain a love and a posture of gratitude towards the provider. The love of wealth is unsatisfying. It's complicated. It's exhausting. But the proper use and enjoyment of wealth is satisfying. It's simple. And it's enjoyable. My guess is that for most of you in the room, you're not like in the ruthless pursuit of riches, right? Like, I don't think there's probably anyone in the room that's like, I need more money. Give me more money, dollars and cents. See that bank account roll and I'm going to live the high roller life, right? Like no one's really after that right now. I think what we're really after is the things that we think or believe that that money will allow for us to do. It's the opportunity that we think comes with it, right? You think if I only had a little more, I could bless my children with this. We could finally take this vacation and provide this lifetime long experience and memory. If I only had a little bit more, then I could maybe give the way that I want. I mean, I want to be able to give the way that I see so-and-so giving. If I only had a little bit more, then I could finally take care of this one headache that never goes away because it's always in the back of my mind, like servicing this debt or whatever it is. If I only had a little bit more, see, we're not in love with money. I think we're in love with the opportunity or the idea that there's some kind of opportunity looming out there if I only had a little bit more. And the correction here is not so much that we should get rid of wealth or somehow avoid it. The correction here is to stop where you are, look to heaven and say, God, you've given me everything that I have. And you've always given me more than I've needed. I'm not hungry. I'm clothed. I've got a roof. I've got opportunity. God has given you every good and perfect gift and to simply acknowledge where it came from, to worship him for it, to praise him for it, and to love the things that he does for you. Not love the things that he gives you. Not love the things that you want more of. It's a repositioning of our heart. I want you as we close, just maybe take inventory if you need to this morning. Just a mental inventory, maybe in the back of your mind, just look around and think, what has God given me? Look at all the things. I got a job or maybe at least a job opportunity looming. I've got a great family. I've got, in some sense, you know, housing, clothing, food, a church family, friends. Look around at what God has given you. And if you find you are lacking, you're hungry, you're in need, cling and grasp not for the things that you have not, for the things that you want, but cling and grasp for the one that can provide all of those needs. Run to Jesus, grab for Jesus, claw to get to the throne of Jesus. He's the one who can provide all those things. Don't grab for the resources that are around you. And inversely, if you look around and you take inventory and you have a lot, 
consider how might God allow for you to continue to use and enjoy the things that he's given you in a way that would encourage and bless others. You know, at, at ABC, we have um, a couple of opportunities. One is, uh, they just mentioned it earlier, um, Financial Peace University starts tomorrow. And if, if you're in a position where you think, yeah, I just want to be a better steward. Like, I just want to plan better and maybe, you know, use the resources that God's given me. But that's a great start. Or if you're in a position where you think, I, I've got to figure out, like, how to manage the resources that I don't have because I, I want to work towards a more sustainable rhythm. The, the best thing about FPU is it's, uh, it's got tools to, uh, to help be a good steward, but it has tools also to, be, uh, to have a grateful heart. And those are two things that have to go hand in hand, I think, as we continue to walk through that. Um, if you are in a position right now where you think, I'm waiting for God to provide. I would, I would love to see him provide right now. <laughs> I know how that feels, and I, I can simply tell you God does provide. He promises it in his word. But part of that is through the body of Christ and the community that we're in here. Um, kind of in, in the vein of Acts chapter 2, of people sharing what they've had. We've got a benevolence fund at ABC where people that have had plenty in seasons where they've, they've had extra have shared. And so we have a fund here at our church where if you literally are looking at this week ahead and go, great, great message on wealth. You know, that, that's a great problem to have. I understand it could be exhausting and complicated. I don't have that problem. I have a problem with knowing how I'm going to literally put gas in my tank next week. That's a different set of problems, right? We all end up in, in both sides of the spectrum. I would just encourage you to reach out we have, um, like I said, some resources that people have so generously and graciously invested to be able to help with those kind of needs. We want to be a community where we can pull together, especially in times of need, and continue to point each other's eyes and hearts towards the one who provides. Let me pray. God, we're thankful for everything we have. We know it comes from you. You've given us so much. Lord, I ask that you would continue to remind and realign my heart toward you, the one who gives every good and perfect gift. Forgive me, Lord, for believing that a, a tangible check or stack of cash would actually be the thing that solved my problems when I know that the only thing that can solve any of my needs is you. So reposition and realign my heart towards you. And then give me the power, as you've said, to enjoy those things. In your name I pray. Yep.